This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. So it is Friday. It is uh, just before 7.10. And what we do every Friday at this time is we reassemble what we like to call the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio. And week after week, the folks who come in to do this always hold up their end of the bargain. And we got two veterans today, so I have no doubt that the same can will be said at the end of the show tonight at 9 o'clock when we wrap this up. Uh, first of all, to my right, to your right on your radio dial. Isn't that how they usually say it? To, <laughs> oh, on the right of your radio dial. Uh, Sandy Shaw, former uh, woman of distinction winner, uh, municipal election candidate uh, on the Port Authority Board, mm-hmm. a whole lot of other things. Sandy, thanks for coming in again. Thank you. No pressure to keep up the uh, trend of being the brightest panel. You know, we, we, we lay the pressure out there and then everyone rises to the occasion. So we haven't, we haven't had a monumental flop yet. We've had nobody that we've had to escort off the premises because they have <laughs> okay. failed so miserably. So I, I'm sure you will be just fine. And next to her, on the left-hand side, going from right to left on your radio dial, uh, Jeff Story, the guy who actually runs this entire operation here. He is the um, he comes in, and if you ever saw the Flintstones, he wears the uh, the Grand Poobah, the the water buffalo helmet. He actually wears that hat when he comes in every day. The big tall thing with the horns on the purple furry hat. Uh, Jeff Story, thanks for coming in. You bet, Scott. Glad to be here. Well, we got so many things. So many great stories this week that I want to talk about. So many great topics. Um, so we will jump right in with the first one. And this was one that I got to tell you, when I heard this one at the beginning of the week, I, I had a visceral reaction right away because it struck me as, well, uh, uh, let me just give it to you and then we'll see if, if other people had the same feeling. There is a woman in Toronto who is 55 years old who decided it as in a midlife change of career. She wanted to change things up. And she decided she wanted to become a police officer in Toronto. But when she went to put in her application and go through the process, they asked her age, which I think is, I kind of thought they would, you know, if if an older person, male or female, walked in for a police interview, they might say, how old are you? She didn't get the job and now she's suing the police for age discrimination because they've, uh, she feels, they've said she's too old to be a police officer. Sandy, is she? Is she too old? Yeah, let's start with uh, that right off the bat. Is 55 too old to begin a career as a police officer? Not is it too old to be a police officer, because there are police right. officers that age. Is it too old to start being a police officer? Well, I think it depends on the requirements of the job. And I think, you know, in years gone by, you had to be a certain height to be a police officer. You had to have a certain, you know, you have to be lift a certain, you know, bench press a certain amount of, uh, of weight. And I think as we, we, we've started to understand that we, as our, as our population changed, they need to tweak some of those requirements. I think even people, we talked about people that were Sikh, weren't allowed, they didn't even want to adopt the uniform to allow them to, to wear their tradition, to the religious headdress. So I think we've, We've managed to switch the requirements as our population has changed. And so, you know, I'm not really answering your question directly, but I would say in the way that we viewed this in the past, people would say, yes, we're too old to start a career. But, you know, you have to keep in mind the demographic shift that we're facing is phenomenal. So they call it the silver tsunami. So they're going to be in the next, you know, 10 or I guess in the next 15 years, we're going to double the number of people over 65. So all those boomers are going to be hitting the age of 65. And it's hard to imagine that all these boomers are not vital anymore, that they're not able to be in the workforce. So I would say I don't think that there's an easy answer to this question. I would say that it really is something that's a shifting sand and that we want to make sure that we don't have, you know, all these people that are 
very vital, could be contributing to our economic growth, could contribute to our economy that are all that are sidelined because we have an old notion of what age means. Well, and earlier, I mean, Jeff, in the old days of police, you think back, if people can remember the um, uh, the movie, what was it, with Kevin Costner about, uh, about uh, Al Capone, uh, The Untouchables, oh, and Sean funny. Connery was the Irish cop mm-hmm. who was, and in those days, you had to be a guy and you had, as you say, to be tough because you were going to get into some brawls with some drunks and you had to be able to look after yourself. Well, clearly... Jeff, we try to not do that anymore. But again, to you, is 55 too old to begin a career as a police officer, male or female? Well, Scott, you know, I'm somewhat opinionated, and I will (laughs) answer your question directly. (laughs) Oops. It's a no. No, of course she's not too old to start a career at 55. You mean, Sandy talked about this silver tsunami. Let's remember one thing. Don't people always say, like, you know, uh, 50 or 60 is a new 50, 70 is a new 60. The reality is if this person's starting a career at 55, that person could still work another 15 years minimum. You know, everybody doesn't don't retire the, at 60 or 65. But 65. don't police have a mandatory retirement age? I, I don't think they do, they do anymore. There's no I don't longer. believe they do. Yeah. I'd have to research that, to be honest, but I don't think they do. Here's the other point. Just on a personal note, you talk about, you know, having to have certain strength and ability physically to be that uh, a police officer, you know, it can be somewhat demanding depending on the situation they may find themselves in. I have a friend in his early 50s, not quite 55, almost Canadian military, physically demanding. Absolutely. I'm almost 15 years younger than him. He could easily do all of those things physically, and I might not even be able to, and I'm 15 years younger, uh, just over the age of 40. So, again, age is just a number. I think it's really about what's upstairs, you know, mentally, and if there's physical attributes that are needed for that job, who's to say at 55 you can't do it? I know individuals, and I know this is different, it's not a career, uh, but when you talk about athletics and having that physical uh, prowess, people in their 60s start to become marathon runners, and they can do marathons, triathlons, you know, when they're in their 60s. So I honestly think it's it's not about the number. It's not about the age. People are going to look at her or him a little bit differently and say, wow, that's a big step at mm-hmm. 55. But it doesn't make it wrong. Okay, but your idea, your example of the marathon runner, mm-hmm. w- while true, there are a lot of people. Ted Michaels, who started late yeah. into running, who, mm-hmm. who's on here all the time. Mm-hmm. But there is a reason why when you have marathons, you have age groups. Because they don't do the marathons in the times that the 30-year-olds do who are at the peak True. of their physical. So you do have people who are able to do certain things. But in the police department, you now have immense competition to get jobs. Mm-hmm. Immense competition to get jobs. And this is probably a second part of it then. If I'm hiring to fill a spot on the police department, and I can hire someone who's 55 who might, if things go well, have... We'll say 15 years, sure. uh, although I think probably 10 is more realistic. But I could have someone who might have 15 years left, or I could hire someone who's 25 out of police college who is going to have a full career. I want to take the person who I think who I'm going to have on this department for an awful lot longer time. So age is a factor, not necessarily as a deterrent factor, but I just I, I would want to have the person I, who's going to be yeah, there longer. And I understand that point, and I understand the thinking. Um, and is that age discrimination by saying I want to be I want to invest my time and prob- effort? Scott, it probably is to answer your question. I think it is age discrimination. It, the way that you laid it out right there. Let's remember too, when you're 55, you probably have a lot of life experiences. I Being a right. police officer, it's also about the mental aspect and which the would maturity. be a positive. Yeah, a positive and the maturity that you need, especially when things may go awry 
in the field, on the street. Well, we've seen terrible examples of that recently. Where, you know, in the States particularly, I'm talking about where people have made you know, those snap judgments that have ended in just absolute tragedy. So mm-hmm. I was going to bring that, that, that kind of life experience, look, you know, having dealt with different people from different experiences and seeing you know, things through many different eyes brings a richness to your employment that you might not have when you're fr- fresh out of police college. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing, you know, to argue against the notion that, that, that um, someone that's fresh out of police college may have a long and enduring career with the, with the police services, it's not necessarily true. Statistics show that people, young, especially younger people, have sh- many short durations of careers. It may be different when someone chooses something as compelling as police services, but they don't have, people don't get a job and then put, you know, put their name on their locker and stick around for 35 years like they used to. I think that's a valid point. In fact, one of my uh, cohorts that works in Toronto, um, an individual just left their firm, and the reality is, young lady, in her early 30s, it's her fifth job in the last 12 years. So that kind of, and that's just one person, one example. But that kind of backs what Sandy's saying is that, you know, if you want to say millennials or the Generation Xers, you know, they might not just be happy by taking one career and saying, okay, for the next 30, 35 years, this is it. They dabble in this for 10 years. And then, you know, they're going to jump over, you know, into a different category and say, take that on too as a new challenge. It's just a different time. We know that exists for sure. We know that exists now. But let me go back for one other thing that we talked about, because are we at this point willing to throw out entirely when we're talking about police officers or firefighters, are we willing to entirely throw out the concept that there has to be some physical ability? Because even though we don't have the Sean Connerys in Untouchables wandering the streets with his billy club getting into brawls all the time, police officers will have to run after people, will have to physically arrest people, will have to do something, I think, still that require some kind of strength, dexterity. I would agree with that, Scott, but I so go back to my initial, we can't I go back to my initial example, which you, I don't know why, but ignore, because you, <laughs> mar- you went to the marathon runner, but the Canadian military... Uh, that I was talking about, you know, in his early 50s. He's more physically capable than I, and he's 15 years older than I am. Um, so, no, I, I, I honestly, I don't think it's about that physical attributes, because at 55, you can be as strong and have the cardio of a 35-year-old. I think it just depends on what you're focused on, and if you want to be in shape, you can be in great shape at 55 versus 45 or 35. So, honestly, I, I do think that being an officer can still be physically demanding, for it is, sure. Absolutely. But I still think that at 55, you could do what a 35-year-old can do. One of the interesting things about this story that um, that has come out is the Toronto Star reported after this this whole thing broke that between December 2013 and April 2016, of 388 Toronto police recruits, zero were in their 50s. Zero were in their 50s. So this is the, the first thing, the, the one thing this might clarify perhaps is this would clearly suggest this isn't just a woman in her 50s that is being told no this is not a sex or a gender thing this is clearly just an age thing and i always come back to the thing with firefighters or anything else if you can be if i'm in a burning building on the second floor and the ladder comes up to my window and i've passed out from smoke inhalation i don't care if you're white black any other color i don't care if you're tall short have seven arms four legs i don't care if you have one leg as long as you can get me out of that building, as long as you physically can get me out of that building, fine. Anything else to me is irrelevant. If you can physically do the job. And so what we don't know from this story, what I can't find from this story, is that back, I guess, four years ago, she initially did the physical testing and passed. But we don't know if 
she did it again and passed. But if you can do the physical testing, if you can pass, you have to be in the mix. Now, the, the interesting also part about this story is what is not clear is why she didn't get the job specifically. It doesn't right. say whether or not there were simply better candidates than her. That part is remains a mystery. We However, don't, Scott, we, that number is <coughs> alarming. That 380 plus figure that you're quoting from the Toronto Star article, that's a fairly significant right. number. You're not talking about 10 or 20 or 30 recruits that didn't happen to join that force post 50. That's 380 plus. That's a pretty big number. It is. But how many recruits do you think, how many people do you think apply to be a police officer after 50? I think it would be very unusual. Well, oh, okay. Over 50? Yeah, I would say it's probably... Very minimal. Yeah, somewhat minimal. I bet you'd get a handful in the last three years that would be over 50. But I think that, you know, I I really do believe, not necessarily that maybe people are applying to be in the police services, but we're going to see a lot of people that, you know, they get their Freedom 55. I mean, there's so many people that race to retirement. And then a couple of years later, they think, well, I can't, got to go to Tim Hortons again today. I think maybe I'll go back to work. So I think we're going to see a lot of people re-entering the workforce that, uh, you know, at at an age where we expect them to be off at the the cottage, right? So I, I think w- that this is this is a trend we're going to start to see, and I think really that workplaces and the workforce is going to need to be able to accommodate people that are over 55 because for a couple of reasons. One is that we do not have the economic growth that we need. So we have, everyone knows the story, we have way more people that need to be, you know, that are out of the workforce that need to be supported by a fewer number of people in the workforce. So it's like an inverted pyramid. So we need to have more people working. The other reason is our, our population growth. We just aren't even replacing our own population growth. And so there's going to be a kind of a competition for talent if we don't have newcomers coming in, if we don't have people leaving the workforce in great numbers. I, I really feel like we're going to have to start to be a little more flexible in bringing people back in. Just before I go to the break, w- would you be okay if you were the one applying and because you are now of an advanced age relative to most of the recruits, would you be okay, Sandy, you're this person now. Now, you're much younger than this person, but you're I, this person and you're applying. We're going to imagine this. And they said, fine, we will consider you. But before we put the time and the money and the resources into training you and everything else, you need to sign on that you will remain with our department for it's like the military X now. number of years. <laughs> uh, that you are going to promise that you are going to not bail on us in three years because you decide that you now want to be retired. Would you be okay I, if I, they said we require you to stay for a period of time? I suppose, but I, w- I don't see why that wouldn't be any different for any of the age gen- generations because you, you know you're putting the same investment into the younger people. You know, there's a I did a lot of workplace development and they used to say about people, what if we spend all this money training people and they leave? Right. And I used to say, well, what if you don't train them and they stay? So you have. <laughs> Actually, well said. I like that. We're going to go to a quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back with Jeff and Sandy right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. This one was a, was a was an interesting one, I thought, when I read this story, because you know that this is going to get a lot of people fired up when they hear about this or read about this. There are professors now, eth- uh, medical aesthetists. It's a word I had to practice saying a few times. Um, at Queen's University in Canada and Oxford University in England, who are also editors of major bioethics journals, who are taking the position that doctors, once you get your medical license and you get to go ahead to go work as a doctor, doctors should not be allowed to be conscientious objectors to any procedure. So if you vehemently believe that abortion is 
murdering an unborn child, you should still have to perform that procedure rather than allowing someone else to do it. If you believe strongly that doctor-assisted suicide is against the Hippocratic Oath and do no harm and all that, you should still have to help someone end their life rather than allowing some other doctor to do this. That you should be allowed to have no objections based on morals, religious beliefs, ethics, anything like that. If there is a procedure that exists and you are trained in it, you should have to do it. Jeff, I'll go to you first on this one. What do you think about this one? Should doctors have to do all these things or does the system work okay as it is now where, you know what, there are people who can do stuff, so fine. You don't want to do it, someone else will. I don't like the sound of this study at all. I don't agree with it. I don't think they should be forced to do it, even if they're trained and are professionals. Um, The reality is put yourself in the shoes of the patient. You've got a doctor that is opposed to a certain uh, surgery and they're being forced to do it. What do you think that doctor's mindset is like before they get on, say, where the operating table is? They're not maybe as focused. They don't have the passion, determination. Maybe they're opposed to it. I mean, being a doctor is a job. And it's like the rest of us that have a job. If your boss asks you to do something and you're not 100% into it, do you put 100% of effort behind it? Is your focus a laser point focus? It's not. That's just the human psyche. So for me, from a patient perspective, I wouldn't want that doctor doing. If I'm the doctor, no, I don't think I should be forced into it. I know I'm making it sound, I'm simplifying it. um, But no, I'm I'm big time opposed to that. I, I don't think it's right. Sandy? Well... I'm nervous if I'm going to disagree with Jeff because he's very opinionated. As I said. But I, <laughs> so how would I don't answer a question again? It seems my, my style. So to me, there's a bit of a difference. So these are bioethicists. So I understand we're talking about ethics and morals, but we haven't talked about what, what are the legal requirements. So I, I'm assuming we're talking about a procedure that is is within the realm of you know our federal or whatever. Yeah, whatever, nothing whatever. they've said so right. far would be you have to so do something illegal. Right. So abortions within the legal limit. Say, you know, so I don't even know that we have assisted suicide. Maybe I'm wrong with that, but not in every jurisdiction are we allowed to do assisted suicide. So I think we need to make perfectly clear we're talking about um, doctors making a decision not to perform a procedure that is within the bounds of what's considered legal. legal. That's fine. Legal. Okay. Well, then the other thing I think that that it it do, is a bit of a slippery slope both ways. One, which is bringing your you know your your judgment into it. So if all of a sudden doctors won't perform abortions, I mean we're going back to you know a, a really long and difficult uh, history for women and women's uh, women's. Uh, reproduction rights that they didn't have access to safe abortions and that there was a real backlash against that. So I think, you know, if we if we look at within the context of what we've had in the past, just allowing doctors just to choose not to do it blanket may may take us backwards to some places where that where they're not it's not medically available. But if you have a hospital for example, that is a Catholic hospital that is created and funded by the Catholic Church, which has strong Mm -hmm. religious and moral objections to a procedure like abortion. And you then tell that hospital, thanks for your service, but what you stand for is not allowed to be stood for anymore. Yeah, it's a very, this is a very complicated topic. And um, the other thing I would add to all this, those doctors were trained with using taxpayer dollars as well. So they're not, you know, not, not, they're not trained, they're, they're trained in schools that are subsidized by taxpayers' dollars. And so I will give an example. Most recently, I think it was in BC, I think it was called Trinity College, where... where Trinity Western University. Yeah, so they, weren't, they didn't want, you know, the same-sex marriages or, or they talked about disallowing gay sex, I think is what they actually called it. And so the Law Society uh, refused 
refuse to accreditate any graduates that, from that uh, that college for that reason. So there's a working example of you know of a law school, and so we could also have you know we could have a, you know the, an, another body overseeing that wouldn't allow them to practice. But I think more than anything in all of this, transparency is key. So to, to, to get to the bottom of this, if doctors are really transparent about if they're given the choice, they're very transparent that I will or I will not. I don't like the idea that you go to a doctor and it's not really clear what their opinion is. It's almost like they should have like a menu. I will and I will not before you show up and have to suss out whether your doctor is um, just, you know, is choosing not to, to be, have you as a patient because you have these certain kinds of beliefs. But that seems to me to be pretty clear, Jeff, is that if you are, if you are a doctor who has made it very clear that, listen, I am religiously, philosophically, morally opposed to participating in a doctor-assisted suicide, I am not the doctor for you to come see, right? So don't, don't, there are other doctors who will Mm -hmm. do this. And I don't think we're ever going to get to the point, and certainly not in this country, I see no evidence that we are going to run into a place where, you know, we we know there are doctors who fall on both sides of this equation. So you're going to be able to find someone. Do you, I guess the question becomes... In this country, without doubt, you'll be able to find something. And that's what we're talking about. To me, there's something about it that just doesn't sit right. Taking the individual's opinion, in this case, a doctor, and just telling them, you know, your values, the way you think your opinion, it doesn't matter. We're going to force you into doing this procedure. Whatever the procedure may be, as long as it's within those legal requirements, like Sandy said, there's just something about that that I can't agree with. I just, it doesn't seem right. I know. I, I, I understand even from a patient perspective. I agree. But it also doesn't seem right that doctors can pick and choose what they do because then it can lead to pick and choose who they serve as well. Well, is it any difference from a doctor picking his, his uh, specialty? I mean, if you're, a, Maybe. if you're a podiatrist, they don't say, hey, you have to do brain surgery well, today. That, that's possible. I mean, that, so I, that's why I think that we need to be really, we need to be, this can't be just sort of this loosey-goosey thing. We have to really be prescriptive, <laughs> prescriptive <laughs> nice. about, <laughs> about what they can and cannot do. Because really, if you really think about it, this is in Canada, this is a publicly funded system. It's you know you go to schools that are publicly subsidized, you practice in hospitals that are public subsidized. Even in Ontario, doctors we have OHIP that collects their they don't even have to collect their bills. We we look after that. So everything they're doing is on the public dime, if I could say that. I know my doctor's going to be mad at me now. So it's a public system. So for them to decide to pick and choose um, what procedures they do, as I said, could possibly lead to, you know what, I don't really feel like serving same-sex couples. How about I don't really feel like serving, you know, someone that's Jewish because I'm a Catholic doctor. I mean, I just really feel like it's a bit of a slippery soap in in terms of discriminating people. But I also see your side, Jeff, because I'm such a reasonable person. Mm -hmm. I see your side as well, where why would, you know, it's equally in some way oppressive to make a doctor perform a procedure that they are ideologically opposed to. Especially when you have doctors who have, and again, I mean, I know what you're saying about not serving gay couples or whatever else, but you have doctors who, as part of their licensing, as part of their teaching, have had to take this Hippocratic Oath. Mm -hmm. So you now have very specific, it's a little different from saying, I'm not going to serve someone, because the Hippocratic Oath can be interpreted when you Mm -hmm. say, do no harm. Right. To say do no harm means I can't, if I believe abortion is killing, right. I cannot philosophically do that. I, I agree if with I that. believe that, say, that uh, doctor assisted suicide is actually killing, I can't do that and say that I've taken the Hippocratic Oath. And if you're now going to say, well, wait a second, you have to take that oath, but you now have to interpret the oath the way that we're telling you it has to be interpreted. I'm with Jeff. I'm, I'm now getting very nervous about where else. We go on this. And I mean, we can go down the path because I still believe, despite the federal government's assurances, 
that children and the mentally ill are going to be left out of the doctor-assisted suicide thing, I still guarantee you Mm -hmm. that within a very short order, there will be a court case with some parent who says, my child needs to be excluded from this, and the doors are going to be thrown open, and the mentally ill and the depressed and and children will all be now eligible for doctor-assisted suicide. And I'm a doctor, and now you're telling me I have to kill a Mm seven-year-old child? And you're telling me I have to do that as part of my medical training? You know what's going to happen? I mean, there are doctors who feel strongly enough that will say, see ya. Out of here. Not doing that. Mm -hmm. Can't live with myself if I do that. And I'm just, to me, this is a, this is a position that some of these people are taking that I don't think, I hate to say it. I don't think a lot of bioethicists, I can't even say it, who work in the ivory towers of some universities have actually had a whole lot of real life dealings with these things. They don't have to deal with the real life situations where you're dealing with a person now. You're dealing with a theory. The human drama. Yeah, that's true. You're not in the operating room. For you're example, not, you're it's not a meeting with the family. Yeah, that's different. When right. you brought the kids into it and you explained that example of the seven-year-old, see, that got, to me, like I got choked up I a little really bit there too. I got really quiet too. Yeah, I know. That, that, that's a great uh, argument and a great point on your part. Because I it's great so. theory. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. So much of university is great theory. And then you take the stuff from university and you have Make it practical, practical and you see that there are situations that don't fall into the nice, neat, tidy boxes that we present as, here's how you're going to do everything. But you can take that, so that's a logical extreme to Mm. to one side. You can take the logical extreme the other way, which is the direction I was going, which you have doctors refusing to perform procedures because they, you know, abortion really is a big one that comes to mind because they're against it. And then, then, you know, women become, have less and less access to safe, uh, available abortions. And so that is a problem. So I think we need to look at I, I accept your extreme as a problem, and I think I'm hoping that you two gentlemen <laughs> will understand the, the extreme that I'm talking about because we we came from that. I mean, it's not it's not 50 years ago that that was the situation for women, that probably in this very city. I mean, that that that's why we had Adelaide. You know, we had women in this very city that were advocating for this kind of access to to. It's about women's reproductive health, and so wouldn't be much long for us to. You know, people get paranoid about this because we could see us slipping back there without without. Uh, much bother. But again, if you do believe, and we got to go to a break, but if you do believe in your heart of hearts that abortion is murder, if you and many people do, if you believe that abortion is wrong, mm-hmm. forcing you to do something then that is akin to murder, to me is a dangerous thing but, to demand that a doctor do. I agree, except that if it's what is... If, if if it's what the law of the land says is available, I don't see how you can choose that profession and be allowed to opt out of it. What if and I'm that's a, what they're saying. And that's what, what if the I'm a firefighter and it's against my bioethics to ca- carry out a six foot four guy out of a burning building, <laughs> however tall you are, Scott? Do you mm. know what I mean? I can't just just pick and choose what I do when I when I uh, accept the full parameters of of a job, right? It is an interesting discussion. It's uh, it, This one will, I don't think, end very easily or very quickly because I really do believe there would be a lot of doctors. who, who And I believe that most doctors get into the medical field for two reasons. One is because they really yes. want to help people and a very tiny percentage because they say, hey, I can have a great life. But I believe that most, the majority are the first. And they believe very strongly in what they're doing and they have strong belief systems and they won't just say, no. I'll go against what I stand for. And so you're going to get into a huge, if you try and tell them they have to do this, you've got a huge fight in your hands now. And with the wonkiness that our healthcare system is going through right now, I don't think this is a conflict that we need to uh, cross and stir up at this point in time. Things are a little difficult right now. Well, and Jeff, especially because you can still, you will be able to find a doctor in this country who will do that for you. 
it may not be the most convenient. It may not be in your hospital room. You may have to go to a different hospital, but you can find someone. We don't live in a place where these are not going to be options available to you. So to force someone to do this seems unnecessarily stirring up a hornet's nest that doesn't need to be stirred up. Anyway, quick break. Back after this on The Scott Radley Show. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Boy, when I said at the top of the show that there were a lot of great stories that broke this week, man, oh man, it was, talk about talking point stories. It was just one after the other. And this one, this one was, um, this one was disturbing. I'll be honest with you. This one was really uh, not something we want to see in this city. And I think most people probably read the story or heard about it here on CHML or saw it on CHCH. The EQAO tests came out, the standardized provincial test that they do for grade three, grade six, and grade nine, or is it grade eight, whatever it is, three, six, and nine in the province to make sure that everybody is keeping up. And what we've discovered is that the kids in Hamilton, especially in the grade six testing, the middle one, you know, the grade three, not, it's hard to tell what to take from the grade three test because they're, you know, they're just starting. But by grade six, you're supposed to have some kind of handle on what's going on. Less than half of Hamilton kids in grade six met the provincial standard for math. Less than half. And some of the numbers we're talking about, I think for, for the public board, it was like 38%. It was... That's the right figure, Scott, was 38. It's... Jeff, I mean, who's to blame for this? We look at these numbers and you say, like, is it the kids? Do we just... Honestly, do we have a, a an era of really dumb kids? Are the teachers to blame? Is it the administration that's to blame? Is it the province? Someone's got to be to blame for these numbers. That's a tough one, Scott, to pinpoint where the blame goes, or at least all the blame. I don't really think you can do that. It's probably a multitude of factors. What I found interesting is you talk about you know math and, and grade six, and in Hamilton it was 38%. The provincial average is also very low. Mm-hmm. So it's just not a problem in Hamilton. Correct me if I'm wrong, I think that was around 50%, the provincial average, Hamilton at 38. I also found it interesting that in Halton region, they were above the provincial average in everything, reading, writing, Math. So I don't think we can sit here and just say, you know, we're in this mode where we've just got some, you know, as you just called it, quote unquote, dumb kids. I don't think we can just pinpoint that. Um, It's probably something to do, you know, with the system and how we're teaching the kids today. That may have something to do with it. I would suggest that's probably a big factor. Um, And it can't just be the teachers. You know, when my kid comes home and says, you know, I'll say, you know, how did you do on that test? And it'll be a mark that she knows she can do better. In. But a part of that equation and that answer, she always talks about the teacher. And I'm like, I just think that's an easy out. It's an easy excuse uh, for a student to say, well, I don't like my teacher or the teacher didn't teach us well enough so that I didn't get a 90 and I got a 78 or an 80. Um, I just think that's an easy uh, out. Um, but just to put your finger on it and say it's this one thing, I don't really think we can do that. It's probably a multitude, but that 38% is a scary number. As far as math in Hamilton, but that's Sandy, bad. if it, with what Jeff says, if we follow the, you know, back in Watergate, the answer <laughs> with Woodward and Bernstein was follow the money. Mm-hmm. In this case, let's follow the marks. Mm-hmm. And if what we do when we follow the marks gets to the provincial average, and we find that provincial average is only about fifty, to me, that suggests the problem is with the province. Right. That's that's the province. What the province is doing to hand this down. If it was just Hamilton that was poor, or just Toronto, mm-hmm. when it's across the province. Something has gone horribly wrong with 
math instruction in this province? Well, to deepen the mystery, the Hamilton-Wentworth uh, Catholic School Board exceeded provincial average. So, it's a, so you know, you can look at, as Jeff was saying, the, the complexity of the factors that go into this, which would be, you know, the demographics. And we talk a lot about Hamilton's low income, like a lot of, you know, childhood poverty and how that impacts you know, people's educational outcomes. We talk about uh, new newcomers, ESL, uh, you know, the number of ESL students that are being, uh, you know, are in our system. So I think that, you know, the, there's no simple answer for a complex problem such as this. And to further your uh, Watergate analogy, I think it was Nixon that said, trust but verify. So I think mm. we have to trust these results, but we have to verify that they were administered properly, they would are administered to the standards, and then we have to verify that, as you said, that 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 coming from the curriculum that's set at the provincial level down to the classroom level, verify that the supports are there, that the curriculum is being taught, that they have the resources that they need, including adequate teacher, you know, student-teacher ratios and adequate teacher teacher training. We've had some people, a couple people on this show who deal with teaching and the theory of teaching and everything else. And they have spoken out very publicly in the past, which is why we brought them on, about the new math. Right. And how people just aren't getting... The new math is causing more confusion. So it's supposed to be this... Rather than just learning your times tables, it's supposed to be this way that you can now sort it out and solve it. It's a problem-solving exercise. So we don't need to know that 7 times 7 is 49. We need to know that if I have 7 boxes of blocks over here and 7 more blocks, that I can visualize the 5 times 5 is 25 because those are... I mean, the whole thing seems to me to have been a bunch... uh, Honestly, my opinion, the whole thing seems to be there's somebody who is some education Mm -hmm. expert who got paid an awful lot of money to come up with some wacky ridiculous new modern theory of math that we that someone at the provincial level then said that sounds really modern and interesting let's implement that and it's been a absolute gong show right across the province so I'll jump in on your uh, your conspiracy theory there if you will because I I think that there's a huge element of that and it seems to me that when they first introduced the standardized testing that the uh, the teachers unions and parents groups were, were opposed to it I think at some point the teachers refused to administer it because for, for many of the reasons that you're talking about that in fact this was not as not that, that they had all these resources to put into the testing but there seemed to be a lack of resource to put Put into the actual teaching, so so this is a this is a a, a a complaint that is not new, but and I on a personal note, it seems like they're always changing this. I remember my father when I was younger trying to help me with my math, and he'd help me and he'd say, you know, seven times seven is forty nine, but he'd put the answer there. But I said, well, that's not how you do it. He said, but that's the right answer. He said, no, that's not the way you're doing it. So he remembered how he was taught to come up with a division, but I was taught to do it in a different way. So if I didn't show the way in which I came up with the answer. I was going to fail. So I think, again, there was a there was a new... Listen, there's an old new math, and I was taught... Oh, I, I, I learned the old new math, you know. Jeff, does this look bad, though, on teachers? Or, does, or do you think, when people look at these numbers, do most people, do you think, look and say, the teachers are failing, the school boards are failing, or the province is failing? Where do you think most people will actually point the finger in this one? Mm, that's a great question. Um, because people love to hate teachers right they now. Do. Yeah, they do. Um, they also love to hate the premier and the liberal government right yeah, now. Yeah, I know. She's got, she's got less than 38%. She's got, she's got a math problem, <laughs> yeah, too. She absolutely she's got lower does. than the provincial yeah. average now. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, I, that's a great question, Scott. I, again, I'm going to say probably a little bit of both. Uh, likely teachers one, province two. 
I think that's how most would think. But again, I will add this is that I think the teachers are an easy target, though. You know, again, I have a daughter now who's in grade 12, and I will say this, really from JK, she's been fortunate uh, to be at great schools in this city and had great teachers and has done well, uh, including in in math. So we haven't uh, had that issue. But um, if you talk to just average Canadians, average Hamiltonians, there is that uh, underlying current right now that um, teachers have it too easy, and I think they're an easy target when it comes to the blame game. I really Mm do. Um, but I think the province is going to share in the blame here. Something drastically has to change, though. There will be some deep investigations here. 38 is unacceptable. But from an Ontario perspective, 50, the, a provincial average 50, that's brutal. As Sandy said, in the Catholic system, numbers were above the average. As I said, in the Halton region, numbers above the average. But honestly, how tough is it to beat the average when it's only 50%? I know. So this has to be investigated and it has to be changed, and maybe we just go back to the, as Sandy said before, go back to the old way of doing math. Let me be really unpopular. Let me ruffle some feathers of people who are listening. Should we be casting some blame in this on parents? Who I thought about who, that too, Who to see be their kids' marks come home and don't say, all right, you know what, I know you got to learn the new math, but you also have to know how to do math, and so whether or not we're going to do the new math, you're going to learn your times tables one way or another because you got to go off into the world eventually. Should we be blaming parents for not taking a little more of a role in this and making sure their kids can do this. I know that not every parent is no. capable, I understand, but generally, there's, we cannot possibly have 72% or 62%, pardon me, if we're having 38% that are only doing this. We can't have 62% of parents who are math failures themselves or mentally or academically poor. There's got to be a less number than that. So do we blame parents in some cases? Again, I think we blame parents, uh, both ends of the extreme. We, we blame parents when they, we call them helicopter parents and they're too overly involved in their kids' education, True. their kids' extracurricular activities. And then we look to blame them when they're, when they're seem, seemingly not achieving. But I think in somewhere in between there, one extreme to the other is, is the sweet spot. And I think that's what we need to uh, look to. And we have to understand that parents do. They need support as well. But you've it's got a kids. Partnership. I've I met do. your daughter. Yes. Lovely girl. Lovely woman. Madeline Very Wilson. intelligent. Yeah, very <laughs> intelligent. But let's say Madeline had come home in grade six. Mm-hmm. And day after day she comes home and you're looking at her work that she did right. at school or her tests and she is failing. Right. Do you as the parent at some point not say, what is going Absolutely. on? I've got to get involved here. Because somewhere along the way, that obviously can't be happening. Absolutely. But here's a question you've made, uh, that are they failing in school or are they just failing these tests? That's a, that's an important question because we don't have, I mean, we have graduation rates of that's something true. like 78%. And you can't fail and kids we don't have we don't have 60% of kids failing grade six, so they're just failing these tests. So, so I that's think a, that's... Okay, so you bring up a great a point. point. It it's a, a great good, point because yeah. we've all, we know too that you're not allowed to fail kids now. Most school boards say you can't fail them. So if you're... So let's. I'll, I'll give the parents the benefit of the doubt here because you just bailed them out. If you, if <laughs> parents, you owe me one. <laughs> no, because if you can't see that your kid is failing in school because they won't allow your kid to fail, mm-hmm. even though they are failing or falling behind, how can a parent, Jeff, then help the kid? Well, so wow. the the non-failing is actually failing the student. 
Sure, which I don't disagree with, but let's be honest. And you I mean you said that you're going to make you know some parents upset by you know saying that they're somewhat responsible. Of course, the parents are somewhat <laughs> responsible. They're the parent; it's mm-hmm. their child. If you don't invest your time in their education seriously, then you're not parenting. So yeah, they share in this. Again, is it five percent on them, ten percent? I don't know what the the number is, but put it this way: you don't have to be failing for you know in any class, whether it be math or whatever, for your parents to say that could be improved or that's not good enough. It's not about getting 49%. If you're getting 65, which is a pass, right. is that good enough? In my books, it's not. In my home, it is not. You still need to have higher expectations, set the bar higher. I just don't even know, though, if parents see 65 anymore or if they simply get a unicorn sticker and a some sort yeah. of well, thing. I guess, it depends, I guess it depends what grade you're in. Uh, again, my, my daughter now is into high school, so, of course, we see numbers. You see numbers. Now, the, other, the easy thing is to say if, you're, if your child is struggling in one class, they could be fantastic at English, and they may just struggle in math. And, you know, is that necessarily awful? Not really. It's just the way that their their brain thinks and the passions maybe that they have is in is in literature instead of math and science. But there's also a thing called tutors in a school. You know, some kids that are really good become, you know, a, a tutor of their peer. Or if you're a parent and you really want to invest your time in, in your child and maybe you just can't be that tutor, you can also hire tutors. And, and by the way, tutors are not really that expensive. They're not, to get outside of school for your child. And, They're not. And we got to go to break, but I mean, I understand that, again, we have a, we're, we're living in a city where there would be a lot of people who, even if it's not expensive, could not afford a tutor. I get that. I understand that. We, it's yeah, not. That's true. Uh, and so, and people know what we're talking about here. There are, you don't have to hire a tutor. You can, mm-hmm. or you can just be involved, or you can get someone, another kid even, to help them. But it just, it seems to me that when we see these numbers, and we all of a sudden our eyebrows cock up and we go, what just happened? This can't have come completely Overnight. out of the blue. No. That's right. It can't have come no. completely out of the blue. I would agree with that, Scott. And I, but maybe this 38% is going to be a wake-up call. Or, or maybe we've hit rock bottom. Maybe this is what's going to change things and make it better. Or maybe next time is 35% and we do yeah. this all over and again. I, and we've overlooked the school board as well. I mean, the school board has a role to play in, in this as well. To, I mean, they're who oversee. The, at the end of the day, they have, it's, the buck stops at the school board, so they need to play a role in this as well. And we got to go to break, as I say. But one other thing we didn't get time to talk about, but you, one of you mentioned it, and that is I'd be really interested to know why the Catholic school board's numbers are so much higher and if there is a reason, I mean, maybe they just have kids in better neighborhoods. I mean, I don't know, like more more socioeconomically advantaged neighborhoods or something, or more English-speaking neighborhoods. But if there is a reason, public board, time to make a visit to the Catholic exactly. board and say, what are mm. you guys doing? Because you're doing something different from what and we're doing. don't be surprised if that happens. Again, this 38% could be the rock no. bottom I, that I mentioned. And it was Sandy that talked about the, the Catholic versus the public and how the numbers are so different. Honestly, Scott, I think to simplify it, that's one step of this process as far as the public board getting better is is to look at your neighbors. I just hope the public board is not so proud that it would not say, yeah, we're not going to go for help. We can figure this out ourselves, but we're going to find that out. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. It was announced today who's getting the Order of Canada. Sorry, the investiture will be... uh, uh, is coming up, I believe, or maybe it was today they got it. Anyway, one way or another, the Order of Canada list is out there. And let me tell you what, it is a long list comp- comprised primarily, in my humble opinion, of people we have never, ever, ever heard of 
I mean, this list, honestly, is the most anonymous list of Canadians you could have come up with. There are two people on here when I read through it that I recognized. Are we getting it? Bob Cole, the Hockey Night in Canada, which, great, Bob Cole, Hockey Night in Canada guy. I don't know how he didn't have it before now. I'm surprised, actually, to hear his name, because I thought he was already in. Yeah, and Lawrence Hill, the author, the Book of Negroes author. Well-deserved. Yeah, and again, Hamilton resident. So those two, I look at and I go... Yeah, you know what? Of course they should be. And I and I grant you, I don't know every Canadian. I don't know every famous Canadian. So there's probably another four or five on this list who you look at and you go, yeah, you know what? That's the, Those are people that deserve it. There are 46 people, and I cannot tell you who 95% of them are. And to me, it seems to diminish somehow the order of Canada when we just give it to so many people. I know the people who get it aren't going to agree with that. You could be anybody and you get this and the order of Canada is a big deal. But Jeff, shouldn't shouldn't the order of Canada be more special than just to give it to people that no one's ever heard of before except their family? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just by the name of it, you would think that it's difficult to get into. Sort of like Cooperstown. You know, it's 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 hard to get in. What is the criteria to get in? When I when I hear a, a name like Bob Cole, it's a household name. You know, been the voice of Hockey Night in Canada for decades. He's a fabric of our country. He's absolutely. a part of the landscape. It's that that level, in my view, that you should have to reach before you have this bestowed upon you. If not, there's actually hope for people like you and I, Scott, mm-hmm. that we could still get in. No. Because if it's average to good <laughs> Canadians, maybe we can still get well, in. Well, you may have a chance at it, but I'm not going to be getting in. But I look at this and I just, Sandy, I just think th- if you, in the States, and I'm, we don't have to compare ourselves to the States always, but if you're going to get the Congressional Medal or you're going to go to the White House, th- to try and find the equivalent in the States, the Kennedy Center Honor, something mm-hmm. like that, you have to be kind of a big deal and not just as Jeff says a Canadian who made some kind of contribution I mean that's lovely but we should all just expect that we're going to be making some kind of contribution I don't think that making some kind of contribution should get you an order of Canada to me it just waters it down so much that it almost becomes irrelevant I, I suppose, but you also don't want it to be, we talked earlier about celebrities and entertainers and sports figures, so I think we also want to make sure that we're recognizing people that sort of toil away in the darkness, the people that are contributing to our society in ways that don't don't Agreed. make the top of the headlines Agreed. as well. And I also, it's a, we've had some cynical comments tonight, so let me add mine. I, I would hate to think that any of this is political. How's that? So I wonder if some of these appointments, you know, are, are I know that, that there's some people have criticized for example the the uh, queen's jubilee the medal that actually gets a point the, the, you know mp's get to select who receives that and that is definitely a very uh, political appointment so i think you know we want to make sure that if this is what we think it is that it's honoring the canadians that we as the average citizen respect and un- know that we make sure that that that's truly the criteria by which they're selected I just don't think it necessarily means to be that they're the average person that we just know from the news or from TV programs or, or musicians, et cetera. I'm, I'm in full agreement with you on the point that we don't want this to turn into a completely elitist mm-hmm. kind of thing. But at the same time, again, as I'm as you're talking, and I'm paying attention to you, but I'm also scrolling through some of the people here. Mm-hmm. And we really, I mean, these people, I understand that many of the people who are on this list have contributed and are really successful in their field, but they, again, 
to me, and I think to most Canadians, are really unknown. And is that... Uh, Maybe that's what the Order of Canada is supposed to be, but then we need to have something else, I think, that says, okay, if the Order of Canada is for all the people who did good. Right. And I'm saying good as both did good for the country and did well. Uh, you know. yeah. But if, if, <laughs> if that's what the Order of Canada is supposed to be, fine. Then let's create something else that separates the real stars of Canada, whether it's entertainment or right. academia or science or... So maybe we should have the greatest Canadian content. Remember well, the we had greatest that with Canadian? CBC, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> who, who was it? Tommy Douglas. Tommy Douglas got NDP, first. NDP, founder of the NDP. And Tor- Terry Fox, I think, was second. Right. And Don Cherry was up there right. in the mm-hmm. top as well. I um, mean, so that's, in some way, that's what, you know, that's that's the populist choice. That's the, you know, who, who people's hero is and maybe a little different. I mean, there's scientists that develop things, you know, women and men that work in fields of, I mean, bioethicists, <laughs> to be honest with you, you know, maybe they deserve an order of Canada because we're trying to recognize people that are, that are, you know, the experts or that they excel in, uh, they excel in fields that we don't understand. But I agree with you. If you want this to be a thing where someone receives the order of Canada, go, yes, that was my choice for someone to order of Canada. It's a different, you know, a different set of criteria. Let me read you and I've grabbed four of them at random here. So I'm trying not to pick on people and insult them. It's not about insulting them. Because again, these people have all done good things in this country. They've been experts in their fields. One of the people is an expert in bridge safety and design. Not exactly what I'm thinking of when I think Order of Canada. But you might be thinking of it when you're driving over the Skyway. One of them <laughs> is a uh, uh, is has a company built on sphagnum peat moss production. Mm. Not exactly what I'm thinking of when I think of the Order of Canada. One <laughs> of them... Um, is uh, a leading authority on war art. Again, not exactly what's driving me to look at the Order right. of Canada and say, yeah, that's some... Um, <laughs> and one of them has championed the construction of buildings that create opportunity for human interaction and expression. And again, yeah. all these people, I, I'm not disputing they've done very well in their field and they're great people and they're wonderful humans and they should be thanked and all the rest. But is that what the Order of Canada was designed to be? Is that, Jeff, is that what it's supposed to be? Or does that sort of make everyone just go, you got the Order of Canada? Oh, well, so did four of my neighbors. Yeah, no, I, I no, I think you and I are on the same page. What I is sphagnum, by the way? <laughs> it's like kind of a moss. I yes, think. it is. But, you know, Scott, I just ran through the list myself. And honestly, How many did you know? Well, there's about 40 on the list. Five. You knew five? Five, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... So maybe we could play the, you know, the Order of Canada game. We have to guess who's in and who's out. We know Pete Rose isn't in Cooperstown. Yeah. <laughs> maybe he could get an Order of Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure he could, actually. Um, what should this be, then? I mean, if we, if we agree that it, it maybe is a little spread a little thin. Yeah, it's tough because you don't want to offend those that are in. I don't Because they've all had, I would assume, significant contributions, but they might not in be... In their house, field. Yeah, in their field which means they may not be household names. You talked about Lawrence Hill, Hamiltonian. There's another person on this list that's somewhat local. I bring it up because they're close to Hamilton. Oakville, which is, what, 20 minutes away. Christine McGee. Oh, the Sleep Country Canada? There you go. I know. So you knew right away, (laughs) right? Because I can hum the tune for you if you'd like. (laughs) But, okay, so again. Co-founder, Sleep (laughs) Country. Sleep Country Canada. So you've got a very successful business person. Yes. Is that... The, the criteria? The criteria for Order of Canada. I don't... See, here, maybe this is the problem. As you said a second ago, Sandy, what is the criteria? Mm-hmm. Like, who is eligible? If I if I simply nominate Jeff or nominate you, is there something that says, 
nothing personal, you two, if you did the same for me. No, they, they at this point don't meet the criteria. Or could you just put anybody in there and you get a few votes and they're in? I don't even know how it works. I don't, and maybe that's another problem with it. We just, we hear about this all the time. And I think that it's become almost an afterthought because so many unknowns have now been swept into this right. and we go, oh, okay, don't, you know. There has to, yeah, there has to be substantial amounts of success, I would think, Scott. And without that, I just don't know how you could get to this level. But look, if you had this, go, go back to 1980 for a second. Imagine this group, and I'm sure it was the same back in 1980, standing in, where do they do it? I can't Rideau even, Hall. In Rideau Hall. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's where yeah. they do it. And Terry Fox gets up to get his Order of Canada, dying of cancer. Terry Fox, who is... Yes. Greatest Canadian. I agree. And now you follow him with someone who opened a local library or opened a business somewhere. It just, it doesn't seem like it falls into, it's not, you're not talking apples and oranges. There's, they're just, it seems like you're, you're giving one, and I know there are different levels of the order of Canada. Okay. I get that as well. But as long as you're going to call everything, the order of Canada, nobody knows what the difference, whether you're an officer or a member, as far as the public knows, it's order of Canada. If you're going to call it all the same thing, you cannot give a professor who has worked in the shadows all of his life, the same award as Terry Fox. That doesn't make any sense to me. If that happened to me, I would have just said, let's delay mine for a year. Yeah, yeah that's right. You well, know, like when what Wayne Gretzky I do got would... into the Hall of Fame. Don't put me in exactly. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll wait a year. I'll pass my, you know, I'll pass the baton. Yeah. I have a feeling too, Scott, that philanthropy probably plays a huge role in this too. I mean, a lot of people that get the Order of Canada are successful business people, right? And then they are so successful, they do a lot of philanthropy in their community and get recognized for that work and then eventually fall into the Order of Canada. Right. And, I, and I applaud philanthropists. Heaven knows this city would be so far behind if we didn't have the David Braley's and Huge. the Ron Joyce's and no, the Ron Foxcroft's and all these people who do these things. Mm-hmm. People may say, oh, you know what, they, they get their name on the building. Sure they do, mm-hmm. but they give tons of money. We would be far poorer for not having those people donate money, and I've forgotten a number of them. But then those are the individuals too, Scott, that end up getting, you know, Citizen of the Year. Yes. They get into the, uh, you know, distinguished uh, Hall in Hamilton as yeah, well. Gallery right. of Distinction. Right. Gallery, gallery of Distinction. Distinction. So those are the types of people that also get honored. Queen's Jubilee is Absolutely. another one. And that's yeah. fine. But again, let me go back to this point. If you are giving Terry Fox or Wayne Gretzky or someone else this medal, this award, surely there has to be some distinction between that and the philanthropist who has quietly or, quietly or not quietly worked. There has to be something, I think, I think that sets it apart and says, you know what, we want to honor you, but not not every right. I, I don't know. So I, is your it, point either we need to m- make a, a separate, um, almost an all-star separate award to honor really the really uh, those that really excel, like the greatest Canadians? Yeah, and we may not do it every year. Right. There might be one every five years. And the Order of Canada is, is per, you know has its its place. So I'm trying to I'm really trying no. to what you're saying is that the Order of Canada has its place. Absolutely, it but does. we have to create another either make the Order of Canada the that that kind of stellar Too performance. Late. Too late. Too late. So now we have to create another event, another award, right? Something. The yeah. reality is if you're doing it every year and every year you you're putting 40 pop, yeah. new members yeah, in, it's, it tends to get watered down over sure. time. And why do you have to put 40 members in? Well, you right? don't have to. I don't think you should. You could have done four members a year and you know what? This would be an elite, and I don't mean elitist, yeah. I right. mean elite 
group that you would look at and you say, this is the best of the best of the best of Canada. I bet right. it's political. Yeah. Should we look into it? If we look at what the government is at the I, time I, and well, the, the a political affiliation I, of I, the I, recipients. I think there's something to be said for that, but that's why I also talk about philanthropy mm-hmm. and, and, and the dollars that are handed out. And when you become successful in business and then you have the ability to be that individual that donates money across the right. board, you just get elevated within your community and then you end up getting into things like the Order of Canada. Right. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. But let's wrap with a lawsuit. This one's a little bit different, though. And I want you to tell me, either of you tell me if this person has a case. Guy gets on an airline to fly nine hours across to the Middle East, and he is in a seat beside a morbidly obese passenger who he describes as spilling over his seat and taking up part of his seat space for nine hours. And he is now saying, the airline owes me at least a free ticket because my nine-hour flight was as miserable as possible because I couldn't move. I was squeezed, and I didn't get my full seat allotment. We're not going to be in making fun of or insulting people who are overweight, but does the guy who missed part of his seat and had such a miserable experience, does he have a case? Does he deserve to get some sort of restitution from the airline? I say yes. But I really, I, I would say yes. I mean, he paid, he paid for a certain level of service, right? I mean, you get, if you, they lose your baggage, you get restitution. If you are delayed, oftentimes if your flight's delayed, they, you know, provide you some kind of compensation, whether you get put up in a hotel or you get a voucher of some sort, or sometimes, you know, you get that little, if you had, they put you up in a hotel, they give you that free kit, you know, you get yeah, the, little, yeah. the little shaving kit and the, the t-shirt to wear. So I, I think that he really, it was a transaction, a contract when you buy a, a ticket to have a certain level of service. And so he gets how, something. So however it was infringed upon, impinged upon, if you will, I, I would say that he has a case, yeah. I would agree with Sandy on this. I think First he has time. a case. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to get, yeah, yeah, yeah. First time for everything, Sandy. Um, I think he's deserving of something, but you, you mentioned off the top a lawsuit. That's probably taking it to the extreme. You know, if you're the airline and this guy has a case, they know because they saw what was going on in that situation. Airlines give out, you know, free tickets and stuff all the time. They're saying they're not doing it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. I'm kind of surprised that they're not because I'm sure there's a lot of other cases that were at least similar in nature where airlines have stepped Mm -hmm. up and and done so. Again, what would be a ticket? uh, What would a ticket cost, Scott, to fly, you know, a nine hour flight? You know, well, it was uh, probably to the e- twelve or fifteen hundred bucks. Well, yeah, yeah, but in the in the big scheme of things, exactly. it's small potatoes. But my not knowing the case, I would suspect yeah. that they're concerned about co- compensating him because of Setting the reason, a precedent? not a precedent, because of the reason. So because they don't want because he's saying because it was an obese person, right. I think they really want to be concerned that it's not they themselves aren't being discriminatory. I, I would just say Optics. they're being very cautious about that. Yes. All right. That's probably true. Let me throw yeah. a different example at you. Okay. okay. It's not a, th- this one was that, but what happens if you get into an airline seat, you've got a nine hour flight and the person in the seat next to you absolutely reeks. Do, are you owed anything? What if the person in the seat next to you has some kind of cold or something that you could be worried about catching because they're sneezing the whole way? What if the person in the seat next to you Pick whatever it is that would drive you nuts. So I've had that happen before where I've sat beside somebody and I couldn't wait to get off the airline, but 
I mean, I don't take any action on it, but again, it depends on the individual too, who feels that they've been, you know, wronged or what have you, or wasted money or didn't get what they what they paid for. As, as Sandy said, this transaction. Um, again, I think it has a lot to do with the individual too, the complainant. You know, it's in their DNA to complain, and maybe they're a bit of a prima donna. Uh, it depends on how bad it is. If it's a cold and somebody's sneezing, me, no, I turn the other cheek, and I mean, I'm fine with it. So. Because I'll be honest with you, the, the, the overweight person taking a little of my space, mm-hmm. I don't know how I would react to that. As I mean, it's a long time to be Nine hours, squished. Yeah. But you know what? I would honestly, I would have a difficult time if I sat down mm-hmm. in the seat and the person next to me hadn't bathed in several days and you've got nine hours of right. body odor. Body odor. I would you have... You would probably complain almost immediately to they, the flight attendant, would this you not? This guy did. And the, the yeah. flight was full. We have nowhere else we right. can move you to. That That one, and again, I mean, I know that not everybody bathes as often as I might or you mm-hmm. might, that would be a big problem for me. If I had to sit next to someone who just reeked for the whole way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that's someone listening. That would cause me a problem. I, I once took a flight, overseas flight, and I was sitting waiting to see who my partner would be. I was by myself, and I saw this really large gentleman coming down the aisle, and I thought, oh, please don't let him sit beside me. And he did. It's a really large guy, was kind of squeezing me. And during the flight, I fell asleep, and I woke up with my head on his shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) So who has more to complain about, him or me? (laughs) Yeah, really. uh, Interesting question. (laughs) Yeah, you can read about that one. That one's online as well. All these stories, by the way, we've talked about tonight. You can find the uh, the genesis of these stories and stories online if you're uh, you're interested in finding them. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.